to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to the COO Roundtable, powered by PFI Advisors. My name is Matt Sonnen. I am the founder and CEO. and uh, We are an operations and technology consulting firm for the RA industry. I recorded a brief intro podcast last month before the holidays. For those of you that missed it, uh, let me remind everyone that I am the former chief operating officer of Luminous Capital, which was a multi-billion dollar RA that sold to First Republic in 2012. And after that sale, I joined Focus Financial Partners, where I worked very closely with many of the COOs at the various focus firms across the country. In fact, Anna Garcia, who is an analyst here at PFI, she worked with me on our team that helped launch the COO Summit which was an annual gathering of the operations and compliance professionals at all of the focus firms. And one thing I noticed firsthand in my career as a COO, and then one thing I've, I've heard from almost every COO that I've, uh, I've, I've talked to, there's a tendency for advisors and owners of RIAs to view the COO solely as an expense for the firm. And the general feeling is, hey, we're the ones here bringing in the revenue. You ops folks over there in the corner, you're costing us money. So this podcast is a, is a passion project of mine. I truly believe that the primary unlock for both organic and inorganic growth for RIAs rests solely in the role of the chief operating officer. I don't know how an RA can experience significant growth if the rainmaker of the organization can't get out of the office to meet with clients and prospects on a regular basis because he or she is stuck in the office dealing with HR, technology, and compliance issues. And by bringing in what Mark Tabergian has termed, quote, professional management, the advisors can focus on what they do best, and because they're focused on what they love, they're going to attack their prospecting efforts with even more energy and focus. So that's the organic side. And then on, on the inorganic side, I believe that a potential buyer needs to advertise the infrastructure of the firm and convince a selling advisor that he or she can now grow much faster when they allay themselves with the day-to-day running of a business and they join the larger organization. Who better to make that sales pitch and educate a selling advisor of the capabilities of your firm more than a COO? With this podcast, I hope to interview two or three COOs per episode in a roundtable fashion to discuss the strategies they incorporate to successfully tackle their day-to-day responsibilities and help their firms grow both organically and inorganically. And I have two such professionals with me today. Jeff Furman of Coastal Bridge Advisors, formerly known as LLBH and one of the focus firms that I worked with during my time there and Tony Cron of Sandhill Global Advisors in Palo Alto. Both firms manage approximately $2.5 billion, give or take a bit, and both firms can attribute much of their growth to these two men. So Jeff and Tony, welcome, and thank you so much for being patient with me here on my first interview. Thanks for having me, Matt. Thanks, Matt. Now, I should note that as part of my passion project of, of trying to shed light on the role of the Chief Operating Officer at RIAs, PFI Advisors put out a white paper in late October of last year, and that white paper has the longest name in the history of white papers. (laughs) It is titled, Exploring the Benefits of Professional Management for RIAs, A Deeper Look into Chief Operating Officers. And both Tony and Jeff were gracious enough with their time to be profiled in that paper. It's available on our website, pfiadvisors.com. So I'm totally cheating here with my first interview because I've already interviewed both of these men. And in fact, during those interviews, uh, I hung up the phone with, with, with one of them and I, I turned to Anna and Alex on my team and I said, this is so much fun doing these interviews. I wish I could do this for a living. And both of them 
immediately said we should do a podcast. So that was uh, sort of the the impetus for for this for this podcast. So let's jump in. I'll start with uh, with Jeff. Jeff, can you just give us a, a bit of a background on Coastal Bridge Advisors? Sure, sure. But first, again, thank you, Matt, and and thank you for uh, your leadership on this on this issue. Um, Coastal Bridge Advisors is an independent RIA founded 10 years ago, as you mentioned, with the help of Focus Financial in October 2008 during the heart and the height, rather, of the Great Recession. Um, a small group of people, I think it was about eight of them, left Merrill Lynch with a roughly $400 million to set up this new business in our current home here in Westport, Connecticut. Uh, today, our AUM has grown roughly sixfold. We're now 23 people, and we operate out of three offices, Westport, Los Angeles, and, and most recently, San Francisco. Um, I'd say throughout our tenure, our aim has always been to serve as the trusted advisor to our clients. And to get there, we offer what we call our virtual family office. That's a range of highly personalized wealth management private banking and family offices services and sophisticated advice for our clients. Um, that's who we are today, but we're never content to rest on our laurels and we're just ex excited about the next 10, year, 10 years as we are about the first 10. Perfect. Yes. Uh, I do know you guys well and uh, definitely one of the, the leading firms in the industry. Uh, Tony, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about Sandhill? Sure. Yeah. And again, thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, yes, so Sandhill is a registered investment advisor here in Palo Alto, the heart of Silicon Valley. Um, we've actually been around since 1982, and I'm not a historian of our industry, but I think that probably puts us close to the genesis uh, of our industry in that respect. Um, and of course, in 1982, Silicon Valley was more of an orchard than what it is today, um, but we're proud to have been kind of uh, a startup ourselves here in the middle of the heart of startup land. Um, our firm today is uh, roughly a little over $2 billion in under, assets under management, uh, roughly, 24, roughly <laughs> 24 employees in total, and um, we really cater to the entrepreneur, the executive, uh, the families of those entrepreneurs and executives here in Silicon Valley, and then throughout the tech and business community uh, across the country. Uh, we ourselves are employee-owned. And that was a result of the firm buying itself back from Boston Private, uh, our parent company at the time in the 2008 downturn. So we've had a 10-year legacy of our current management team together and growing this uh, approximately four, fourfold, three and a half, fourfold since our acquisition and are looking forward to uh, continuing that growth curve here into the foreseeable future. Perfect. <clears throat> So I, I've talked to both of you about this um, privately and, to, and together. The the RIA industry itself is pretty niche within the wealth management space, and then the COO role within the RIA industry is super niche. Um, I found that when RIAs uh, as they're growing and they finally make that decision, yeah, I think today's the day we we probably need uh, to bring in a COO. They're hard pressed to find an experienced professional that, oh, great, we found the perfect candidate that was looking for a job. He's been in the CO, he or she has been the COO of an RIA, a multi-billion dollar RIA for six years, and now they, they're looking for a job and we can just hire them in. Uh, that's just never going to happen. So 
typically RAs are forced between two choices. Either, and this is how I got the job originally as a COO, you're, uh, you promote someone from within, a junior person, um, but the benefits there are they know the clients already, they know the employees really well, they're familiar with the, the technology that, that the firm is using, um, but they don't have any managerial experience. They've never had people reporting to them. So that, that's uh, uh, the big challenge for that junior person. Or the flip side is I have somebody with great managerial experience, um, but they're coming from completely outside, outside the industry. They know business strategy, they know HR policies, uh, workflows and processes, but they don't know wealth management. They're completely lost by our lingo and the systems that we're using um, in, in our industry. So with Jeff and Tony, we actually have an example of, of, of both scenarios. Um, so Jeff, uh, and actually you just did a, uh, you were a, a, on a panel at the Market Council conference recently, kind of talking about the quote outsider uh, experience of, of coming into to, to the space. So why don't you give us uh, uh, the, the background story of how you personally joined Coastal Bridge? Um, I think it was 2012. Sure, sure. Yeah, it was it was 2013, and um, actually, this is my second go at Wall Street. Um, at an earlier stage in my career, I was an investment banker, and transitioned from that role, offering advice to operators, to becoming an operator myself. Um, in my first foray in in the new capacity. I served as a CFO and then later chief executive of a technology business. Subsequently, I became the president of a talent agency called IMG Artist. Um, and in many ways, the curious thing is that the talent agency business is similar to what we do in the financial advisory space. In, in both, it's about the delivery of white glove service to a discerning group of select clients. And so, when I left IMG, I had to convince the founders here at Coastal Bridge that not only did I offer all the necessary skills and attributes required to fulfill the role, but, but like you just said, my lack of industry exposure would actually offer an advantage. My, my perspective was I could come with sort of a blank, blank sheet of paper and not necessarily come with legacy thinking or legacy relationships, but, but an, offer a new view of the world. And to their great credit, um, the founders of our firm had a progressive view about what they said, drafting the best players. And I was fortunate to be considered and, and ultimately able to land the role. I'm still, PFI is three years old now, and I'm still getting used to this consulting role. But one of the very common things consultants say is, you know, the worst thing you can hear is, well, this is the way we've always done it. <laughs> so um, I, I can definitely see that uh, uh, why they, you were able to make that, that pitch to them and why they found that uh, interesting. Yeah, so definitely. Tony, uh, yeah. You know, that's, that's the kind of mentality they had. They had. Yep. No, that's perfect. Uh, so, Tony, you had extensive experience in wealth management when you joined Sandhill, but you weren't brought in exactly into that COO role. <clears throat> Excuse me. So um, why don't you talk us through uh, how you joined and then how you evolved into the role of the COO? Sure, sure. And, and as we've joked before, uh, no one grows up typically suggesting that uh, they want to be a COO of an RIA as a life goal. Uh, so, you know, I wanted to write movie scripts or be the general manager of the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, so my, my route to this position has not been one of a, a preordained destiny in elementary school. 
Um, so my route to the position really started with not knowing what I wanted to do in this industry. Uh, I come from a liberal, liberal arts background. I have a wide range of interest, but I didn't have a single passion or focus in terms of what I wanted to do. And so when I joined Sandhill in 2005, I had about three years of industry experience in different roles in terms of managerial and operational and a little bit on the technical side. And I said, hmm, why don't I try becoming a CFA and a portfolio manager? I put that hat on for a little bit. I took it off. I was a client service associate, the manager of client services. Um, as it often happens in many of our firms, the younger you are, the more uh, likely it is you're going to get handed the technology of the firm, whether you have an interest or ability or not, uh, that typically defaults um, by age to a certain uh, person. And so ultimately what happened was in my exploring different opportunities and interests throughout the firm and thinking about my future, I gained what I would consider a pretty wide and generous liberal arts education uh, in this industry. As time went on, I saw that there was an opportunity to take the parts of the business and kind of meld them together in a way that allowed uh, the firm, uh, in my opinion, uh, to function a little bit better. And as I considered my role, it was more of the, um, the performance-enhancing drug for all the other groups. And so over time, I found that my wide interests were actually a benefit and not a hindrance to development, and that not being a singularly focused person was actually something that I could use to my career advantage, but also uh, to our firm's growth. So let me ask, as you, as you were going through that, a question came to mind. I think the RA space in general, so it's a, it's a lot of it is um, we're leaving the corporate world, we're leaving the Merrill Lynch's, the Morgan Stanley's, uh, and we're starting our own entrepreneurial endeavor. Uh, uh, and so there's somewhat of a mindset of, well, we don't want processes and the man, <laughs> we don't want the man telling us what to do on a, on a day-to-day basis. And I think that's one of the challenges for the COO, uh, CCOs have this problem as well, but um, just how do you get buy-in for the ideas of, you know, hey, we're making this a business, we're going to run this as a business now. Obviously, some of that is um, going to be process-driven. Um, do you think, Tony, as you were walking through that, do you think having that background helped you communicate to the employees and, and you were able to sort of um, appeal to them on their same level? Hey, I've been in your shoes, et cetera. Um, did, do you think it helped you with your communications with the employees that were now reporting to you once you moved into that role? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things we think about as we talk about the role of the COO and the traits of the COO, I think that empathy um, for colleagues is one of the traits. I think a willingness to, I don't want to use the sacrifice, but sometimes you need to blend into the background. The show is not about you. It's about other performers uh, in, the, uh, in the band you're playing with. And so I think when you work in these different capacities, you start to gain an empathy for the frustrations that come from process. And I think one of the misconceptions a lot of folks have in the operational world is that those in, say, sales, portfolio management, compliance, I think the misconception we have is that they don't want to do a good job. They just want to do it their way. And I find that in our organization, especially, there's wonderful talent 
really great people. And what they're looking for is someone to remove obstacles with process and not add to them. And so I think that with that empathy and that understanding, you can look at it and say process, procedure, structure is the way to give you freedom. Because ultimately what people have left wirehouses for and what great job satisfaction comes from, in my estimation, is a higher degree of input and autonomy. And if you can create process and procedure that allows for additional freedom so that chaos doesn't reign, I think that's the reward. And if you can articulate that this process will give you more freedom ultimately by organizing and structuring uh, things around you, that's the sell and a sympathetic ear and empathy for the position uh, that they're in um, will help the COO make that, uh, make that sale. I think that's all exactly right. Jeff, what kind of communication strategies, how do you get buy-in for the, the things you're bringing to the table? I mean, I think, uh, I think Tony nailed it. I think the, yep. the empathy and removing obstacles as he spoke of are, are right on point. Um, in, in our case, uh, it is, it is just that and adding that, um, we, we need to remove those obstacles in order for the business to flourish. And if the business is flourishing, it means our employees are, and they're growing and developing professionally, economically, personally, what have you. And so, so that's the kind of discussion, um, as we, as we build a stronger firm, it will be good, good for our people. Perfect. I think, I think that's right, Jeff. I started the podcast talking about the COO position being a unlock for growth. And I really do believe that by freeing up the advisors to do what they do best, it allows for the firms to grow much faster. Um, at the same time, though, to be fair, if, you're, if your firm isn't growing, you're probably not bringing in a, a, a COO. Both of you are on rocket ships. We, we, we talked about the growth that your firms have, 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 have gone through in, in the lifespan of the firm. But let's talk specifically about how fast the firms have grown since you've joined um, and what challenges that has brought up for both of you. Um, when things are moving so fast, you're adding so many more account numbers to your reporting system. You're adding just so many more clients that need to be serviced, et cetera. Um, so Jeff, I'll, I'll, I'll go to you first. Can you just talk a little bit about, I think from the white paper interview we did, I think Coastal Bridge, you mentioned they were 400 million when they launched. I think they were about 900 million when you joined and now you're over 2 billion. So can you just talk a little bit about the growth the firm has undergone uh, since you've joined and how you've sort of navigated that? Yeah, that that's right. We were 900, uh, about 900 when I joined, and today we're probably two and a half to three times that amount. Um, at that time, I think I was the 13th member of the team, and today we're 23, and we were one office then and three offices now. But but I think it's actually more than just the numbers. We've grown in in other ways as well. We're we're much stronger. Our technology is better. Our organization is communicating and operating more efficiently. And I'd say the level of sophistication and creativity we're offering our clients has taken a big step forward. And I would agree with Jeff. I could just jump in there because yeah. I think that a lot of times the growth we talk about is on AUM and accounts. But what Jeff said really nails, I think, what we're all, all facing, which is the complexity of it. And so in that respect, and I'm sure Jeff is, is seeing, seeing this as well, 
which is clients don't get less demanding of services over time. And the competition doesn't offer less over time. It becomes, hey, I'd like this, I'd like that. And the strength of our firms, uh, in my opinion, the independent RIA, is the customization, the personalization, and the high touch. Jeff referred to the white glove treatment earlier. And so I think that those types of businesses that we are in, the ones that are high touch, customized, personal, scaling those, adding more clients, adding more services, I think that is really the challenge that we all wrestle with. And so sometimes it's not so much how much your assets or your client grows, but the offering mix that changes, the demand and sophistication that they're asking for, and it forces you from a technology, a people perspective, a risk management standpoint, and quite frankly, just a business choice in terms of the bottom line. And so I think that's, in our experience, the challenge of the growth is that the complexity and sophistication um, on an individual client basis has to be scaled. And that I think that is the challenge in the growth. I think that's exactly right. Uh, in our in our white paper, we pinpointed three high level roles that the that the COO takes responsibilities that they have. One is just the day to day administration of the firm, and that sort of leads into the culture of the of the organization. Two is really what it, most people think when they hear COO. They just think, well, you just manage the technology. So it's managing the the technology, the workflows, the processes of the organization. And then three is there's, a, there's a, a big HR component to it. Most of the time, the COO is doing the interviewing, the hiring, doing the uh, uh, staff reviews on a, whether it's an annual basis or, or semi-annual basis, whatever it may be. Most of the staff is, is reporting to the COO. And both of you have very strong HR focuses at your firms. Um, so Tony, can you walk us through your hiring campaign that you've, that you've gone and the work you've done at Sandhill to attract uh, to make your workplace attractive for new talent. Sure, sure. Yeah, so I think one of the uh, one of the epiphanies, if you can call it that, I had um, some years ago when I was competing against Merrill Lynch's, the Morgan Stanley's for talent. You know, my office sits a couple of blocks from Stanford University. Obviously, the war for talent in Silicon Valley between us and technology is there. And I kept saying to myself, why... Why would a young person, why would a mid-career professional want to join an organization that I think is phenomenal and wonderful to be a part of both for personal and career development, but I'm not Google and I'm not Amazon and I can see both of their offices from my office uh, as I look down the street here. And the thing that I come back to that the independent RIA has as a talent advantage, especially for younger people, is that we offer opportunity. And... I've never met a CEO of a wealth management firm that said, you know, we figured it all out. It's rinse and repeat for us. There's nothing more to do. Usually uh, a COO carries a list of 17 or 18 things in their pocket that they hope that they can pull off this year, but they know behind that that's making them better. And then there's another 17 things after that. And so we as independent RIAs offer wonderful career opportunities for young people, especially because it's, uh, it's, it's a chance to try something, to take on something. Uh, there's things that are laying around untouched. You want to try that? Go for it. No one else has time for it. And so my sales pitch, if you call it that, to f- folks working at wirehouses, I was going to lose on compensation, to be frank. Silicon Valley uh, and 
Sand Hill Road is is quite a, a, a behemoth in terms of compensation for people in this industry. But I had opportunity and I had career growth. And I started by bringing people who saw a career path here and opportunities to touch things that were untouched and went from there. And they brought in similar-minded people. And it's probably my most proud accomplishment today is that people that I brought in on the client service side are now in the chief compliance role. They're senior portfolio managers. They're wealth managers. And they saw the opportunity in the small RIA and, and ran with it. And I think that was from the HR breakthrough I had. I was, I was competing on the opportunity I can offer and not the brand name per se. You, you and I met many, many years ago at a, at a Fidelity conference, and I thought I had this. I was so unique as a COO of an RIA. And I, I, so you, you're next door to Stanford. We were right next door to UCLA. And we would put up job postings, and one, if, if we were lucky, <laughs> would, would apply. One, per, <laughs> one kid would, would apply. And we didn't understand because we think within the RIA space, right? I said it earlier, it's very niche, but within the RIA, we manage a couple billion dollars. What's wrong with these kids? And it dawned on mm-hmm. me, yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> most of these kids can't spell RIA. They don't have a clue that this side of the world even exists. But also what's very different uh, when I when I got into the industry in 1997, uh, finance, Wall Street, all of that was much more exciting for uh, a 22 year old. Um, we definitely do have that problem. I think right now is is coming out kids coming out of college right now aren't thinking of just wealth management, period. But then they don't even know that the that the RA space uh, exists. And so I used to do. I got to the point where walking into the career center at UCLA was like Norm walking into Cheers. Everyone's like, Matt's here. <laughs> uh, because I would do anything I possibly could to just to have the Luminous Capital logo behind me for an hour. So I was teaching resume classes. I was, uh, anytime they had a, um, a panel of, let's teach you know, um, juniors and seniors, what finance is. And so there would be a forensic accountant with the FBI on a panel. <laughs> and then it would be, I would be representing wealth management, but anything I could do just to get the luminous name in front of, uh, in front of people. And so it, it did work when we started posting jobs, we would, and we went from one, we'd get 25, 30, 40, uh, even applicants because they at least knew who we were. I thought I had unlocked this, this great thing. And then you and I met and you told me what you were doing. And I said, Oh, I'm an amateur. <laughs> Um, but it's, it, it is a challenge to, to bring in new talent. And I think you, you've done a great job. Well, and I think, yeah, and I think one of the things too, that we as an industry, anything about from the COO role can do is tell people that not all positions in our industry are sales. And I think that one of the big detriments in, in terms of people wanting to join our industry is they, their image of who they are going to need to be is a, a broker who can sell and they say, I can't sell, or I don't want to sell. And they first misunderstand what sales are, actually, which is relationship building, uh, not a not a slick pitch. But then they say, you know, I don't know about financial planning. I don't know that I can work in technology in this way. And so I think someone like Jeff's background is encouraging because it shows you that you don't have to be an industry person to be a major contributor or force in your firm. And I think that seeing that folks from outside our industry can come in, be it from tech, from entertainment, that shows that this is not just a place for you know people off the assembly line of the sales machine at Merrill Lynch, and that's a an area I hope we as an industry can keep telling people that there's opportunity here for people with lots of different backgrounds, thoughts, and experiences. Shameless plug: uh, Alex Webb on our team just recently wrote uh, an article 
uh, on our blog about because um, he he just um, started this June. He graduated from Miami of Ohio, and and he just wrote an article about the RA space is a great place for millennials. We just aren't doing a great job of of, of expressing it. So um, that's our shameless plug for the uh, for the podcast. <laughs> um, so Jeff, you've got a uh, I've never heard of this before. That you've got a very interesting strategy around job descriptions and roles within the organization. Walk us walk us through that. Sure, sure. So one of the things we think about as we continue to build out our organization to meet the um, increasingly complex needs of, of clients, as Tony alluded to earlier, it's, it's how everyone's position fits in the greater scheme. And job descriptions tend to seem like a trivial matter, but, but I believe they're that crafting and maintaining a well-defined job description is, is of fundamental importance. When you consider that in many organizations, you know, a new employee comes in and they'll get a job description, maybe, and often that job description looks more like a recruiting document. It says things about, you know, the education requirements and certifications and technical skills required, and then it will have a brief job description. And then oftentimes, that person's job morphs over time and the job description that they signed up for originally uh, bears no resemblance to that. And, you know, frankly, in my view, that's, that's not fair to either the employee nor their manager um, to have a clear and agreed upon expectation of the role. It creates confusion, inefficiencies, and, and frustration. So, what we've done is spend a significant amount of time drafting highly detailed descriptions of every single role in the, in the organization, laying out functional responsibilities and expectations, and to make sure that they're uh, fresh, if you will. The employee and their manager review them every 90 days to ensure consistency and, and, and that agreement between those two people. Um, Beyond performance management, this this helps us with training and development, career pathing, and 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 even resource allocation. So, it's a it's a key element of our human resources strategy. I think it's fantastic. Like I said, I hadn't heard of heard of it um, executed exactly the way you guys are doing it. I think it's I think it's fantastic. One other, let's see. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Um, you can't really have a, a discussion about the RA industry right now without talking about uh, consolidation and, and M&A. Um, it's such a big piece of what's going on in the industry right now. Uh, so, Jeff, um, what is your view? So it's a two-part question. Uh, what's your high-level view of just the M&A opportunity in the RA space? And then more specific, what where do you see your role um within your organization playing uh, in, to better uh, make Coastal Bridge um, successful in the M&A game? Uh, well, I'll take your, your latter one first. Um, it is, as you, you mentioned when you, with your opening remarks about advertising the infrastructure. I mean, I think it's about uh, a build it and they will come type strategy. Um, my role, or at least the way I see my role is to, to build a, suite of services to support our advisors build, sustain, and grow their business. Um, and the concept there is true for existing advisors, but also for those we'll bring on. 
So we think we've built an attractive engine and we, we continually need to evolve. But that engine offers tremendous value to those currently inside and could potentially to, to prospective outsiders. Um, so our, our M&A strategy as a firm is, is really built around that. I mean, we've got to keep our house in order. And, and as long as our house is in order, so too uh, we'll find opportunities for, for those to come in. Perfect. And uh, Tony, you and I have talked uh, in detail about your kind of high-level thoughts of uh, consolidation in this space. Why don't you share those with everybody? Sure, sure, sure. Well, I think the conversation you and I had is that it's going to happen, Um, that you look at the economics of individual business, you look at the competitive nature of the space, and it's just a matter of time um, before we start to see a pickup in that, and that perhaps a maybe a benign market or, or a bear market might you know scare some folks or, or give some folks the impetus to move. But I think just in general, and again, I look at a Focus Financial and and how they've done a really great job of growing through all the acquisitions and and doing all the different ways of, of growth inorganically. But in general, I think there's a misperception of what this should look like. This what I'll call a revolution. It, you know, a lot of stuff that crosses my desk is more like 65-year-old advisor doesn't want to do it anymore, buy us out. And a lot of the acquisitions are being presented more as hospice and organ harvesting as opposed to <laughs> a joining up of, uh, of two healthy bodies together, right? So I think first and foremost, I think that our industry needs to look at not waiting until the terminal end of a firm before selling because in my opinion strip mining a firm for cash flows at the end of an advisor's life cycle is not the ideal thing to do it's a human capital business i can't imagine that taking the human capital out of a business is the ideal way to go so that's that's one thing i'd hope the conversation gravitates more towards one of uh, mid-stride firms um, joining together and i want to use that word joining um, teaming up, because I think the nomenclature around acquire, takeout, threw in the towel, gave up. I think those phrases make founders who have a lot of pride in what they built, a lot of ego in what they've done, kind of repel themselves away from this because it's like, well, I had to sell out or they took me over. And I think if we could look at firms more like how the tech community works around me, a lot of times companies are started with the intention of being a part of something bigger. You create a niche, you create a specialty, you develop some kind of technology that would look really good as a complementary piece to a bigger firm. So I think of our firm, we have a specialty in divorce. We've done that now for almost 30 years and it's become kind of our our hallmark in terms of a niche. And there's all kinds of these niches and pockets throughout our industry that look good strapped to a bigger firm um, like a Sandhill uh, in this process. So I think just in general, people will have to realize that fees only go in one direction over time. Uh, You need scale and complexity and offering is going to grow. I think back to a few years ago in the robo craze, everyone's like, do you want a human or do you want a robot? And the answer everyone said was, I want both. And I want it cheaper. And then Vanguard 
starts hiring CFPs to go with their offering. So I think people are going to come to this realization that they're better together than apart. I hope they come to it at a midstream standpoint, not in the terminal hospice phase of their firm's history. And I think firms like ours look at it and say, we don't want to be a conquering hero that takes you out. We want to bring you into the fold together to build something greater with our specialty, your niche, and our combined scale of economics. I've uh, talked to quite a few people, and I think there's been some, a couple articles written about it as well. The, quote, the uh, term tuck-in should be removed from everybody's uh, lexicon. It doesn't go well in your uh, dating phase. Uh, calling someone a tuck-in uh, does not make them feel warm and fuzzy <laughs> to join your organization. So I, I think everything you're saying is, is right. And you, uh, you win the prize. The, uh, the quote of this podcast is definitely hospice and organ harvesting. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, it's very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so one of the one of the other goals of this podcast is not only promoting the, the 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 role of the COO and shining a light on the importance of the COO role, but specifically for those COOs that are listening, one of the challenges of the role is just juggling so much. A lot of times you're handling again the the, the technology of the firm, but you're handling the the what the lobby is going to look like and. And I mean, literally some of watering the plants many times falls, falls on the COO. It's whoever, the, whoever is in charge of uh, infrastructure that covers everything. So one of the challenges is just how do you, as a COO, how do you, how do you handle so much responsibility in any one day? So um, I'll go to Jeff first. Uh, when you're laying your head down on your pillow at the end of a specific day, how do you define success? What had to have happened that day that you say, yes, this, this was, this was a good day. Well, I think about when you talk about laying your head down to sleep, I, it reminds me of the, the line about, I sleep like a baby. I go to sleep, <laughs> I wake up crying and then I go back to sleep again and do the same thing a few times every night. Um, and when you think about organ harvesting and hospices, perhaps that's, that's true here too. Um, you know, no two days are alike and, and, uh, you know, but what excites me, I guess, is, is when I know our business is growing, um, that tends to mean our, our, our team is working at optimal levels and our processes and technology and ecosystem is delivering as expected. And, and our clients are, are being delivered the service they deserve. Um, ultimately, um, you know, you don't measure your business on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, especially in this role. It's hard because every day is indeed so, so different. Yep. Yep. So Tony, what are your bedtime rituals? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, besides praying long and hard, uh, <laughs> about, about myself and, and what I've done for the day. No, I think, I think it's twofold. I, I, I think that as a COO, I think about risk and growth and how they fit together, right? So I think with the uptick in cyber uh, incidences, with the uptick in money movement fraud, with all the ways that firms have become more exposed and vulnerable um, to risk in the last few years, I think that's, that's part of it, that I do my part today to help mitigate the risk of the firm. Uh, so that's one half of it. But then on the other half, I'm thinking about the growth. Did I do things today that will allow the firm to grow, that will allow individuals in our firm to grow. And balancing those two can sometimes be a challenge, as you both know, 
because growth sometimes entails risk. Uh, you know, think about technology initiatives, going to the cloud, going mobile, trying to take on more client data, protect it. And so for me, that's the conversation I have in my head. Did I do everything to protect the firm today and promote its growth at the same time, both at the firm and the individual level? Like I said, my, I view my role as being a performance-enhancing drug for everyone in the organization. And if someone's not growing, then I, I, I have to take some responsibility for that as well. Fantastic. I cannot thank you both enough, number one, for being patient with me. This was my first podcast interview, so thank you both. I think we've raised some amazing topics here uh, and strategies, things you guys are doing to help your firms uh, continue to grow. So I just, I, I really want to thank, thank both of you for, for your time today. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So uh, podcast listeners, um, uh, I think we've spelled out what the, what the strategy is going forward. We want to continue to um, talk about these types of topics and others that, that the COO role uh, can do to help their firms continue to grow and at a macro level um, continue for the RIA space to grow from a collection of practices to businesses. Um, I think there's going to be, as the, as the space continues to evolve, I think that is going to become more and more of a, of a theme that we're all dealing with. Um, more assets, more clients, um, consolidation, et cetera. So we're very excited to continue this, uh, this journey. Um, our next interview is also coming from uh, people that were profiled in our COO white paper. I'm going to be uh, speaking with Mike Lee of Lord Murray and Gary Bonner of Avalon Advisors. We're really excited about that. And uh, we've got we've got others um, uh, in the pipe as well that I will not reveal. <laughs> um, so thank you all for listening and we will uh, talk to you soon. Thanks.